Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Kroger always gives you savings and rewards on top of our lower than low prices. And when you download the Kroger app, you can enjoy over $500 in savings every week with digital coupons. Plus, you can earn fuel points to save up to $1 per gallon at the pump. So it's easy to save big. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. We've locked in low prices to help you save big store-wide. Look for the locked in low prices tags and enjoy extra savings throughout the store. Kroger, fresh for everyone. My name is Sylvia Muramu Chabo. I am the founder of Andy Speaks for Special Needs Persons. And uh, welcome to our Special Needs Hangout. This is episode number 10. And today we'll be discussing puberty, self-esteem, adolescence, you know, all those complicated things that we always have to go through and we have no idea how we're going to navigate it. So. We, we are honored today to have two speakers, two great teachers who've been teachers for over 10 years each, uh, also equipped as um, specialists in other areas from speech to education assessment. And since they're in the schools they're in, they mentor and they work with a lot of boys uh, through puberty. We're looking forward to hearing from all of them and learning a great lot today. Kindly, let's just go through the house rules. As you come in, please, if you want to say something, raise your hand. And uh, if you have any questions, you can post it on the chat and we shall we shall keep uh, bringing it forward and 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 we see how that goes yeah so Karibuni I'd like to start with Dr. John Onala please introduce yourself all right so um, John Onala as you said I've been working with children with developmental and learning needs for so many years now I think Approaching 20 years now, it has been a long time working with children. So uh, I do assessments, I offer consultation. C can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Right, yeah. So basically working with children and adults with uh, developmental and learning needs. Right. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Nala. And Asa, kindly. Introduce yourself. Unmute. Hello. Yes, Hello, can everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Yes. Yes, my name is Sasa Mwangi Rongo. I'm a teacher. We've lost you. We've lost you, guys. Again? Okay, you're back. Uh, yes, I have 20 years experience working with special needs children. Uh, thanks to have John Onala, who was my classmate when we were doing undergraduate studies. Good to see you. My, nice my seeing you. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, I'm also a speaker language therapy, therapy. So I've been working with teenagers with mental disorders. I, from the mental, to visually impaired, 
to hearing. All right, awesome. So at least we have a bit bit about um, our guest speakers today. And as you can see, they are vastly experienced when it comes to special need children. While some of us have just done uh, under 10 years and we feel like we have a PhD, they're the ones who are in that space quite greatly. <laughs> so we shall first start. Um, like at what age, uh, to you, Dr. Nad, at what age do we expect, someone had mentioned that special needs children approach puberty a bit earlier. So what, what age, and today we are specifically looking at the boys and we shall be looking at the girls uh, in another two weeks. So kindly just guide us, like at what age should we be and what are, are we going to be looking out for exactly, especially looking at uh, most of our kids are nonverbal. What are we looking out for? Right, yeah, uh, that's quite important. It's also necessary that we understand that special needs is very diverse. We have so many conditions within special needs. So, and children with different conditions are likely to approach puberty uh, at different ages and exhibit different behaviors. So we have some conditions like people with autism, people with visual impairments, uh, hearing impairments, will probably be slightly different from people with uh, Down syndrome. So people with Down syndrome, for instance, will reach puberty a little bit late. Uh, they are slightly different from the other categories, but these other categories might reach their puberty a little bit early. And there are quite a number of uh, telltale signs that you uh, start seeing, and we need not to wait for those telltale signs before you start working with children. So when your child maybe, let's talk of approaching the issues related to sexuality before you even start approaching or dealing with the issues related to puberty. So we need to teach them about their sexuality, about uh, public and private behaviors, what they can do in public, what they can't do in public, uh, how to re report abuse. If the child is nonverbal, can we use pictures to help them learn how to uh, report abuse? Can we teach them uh, whom to work with or who not to work with? If a child is at home and you're not there, can the child open the door to anybody coming home? So we need to look at it from that angle. And then now when puberty is now approaching, there are a number of telltale signs that you start seeing in children as early as uh, 10 years, 11 years for boys. Sometimes girls reach their puberty a little bit earlier than boys. But now we are looking at these children at around uh, 10, 11 years old, uh, you'll find that sometimes there's attachment with their genitalia, they want to touch their private parts, even in public places. Uh, you find them looking at photos of girls, you know, they start getting attracted. So if they are looking at magazines and they see some pictures of beautiful girls, you, want, you see they want to look at that. Uh, maybe they want more hug from mom, more than from dad. They want to hang around girls more. You can see that now they start getting attracted towards members of the opposite sex. And the problem is usually they do not know how to express uh, their desire. So if it's a child who is nonverbal, the child will not know how to express that. So by the time as a parent you start getting concerned, sometimes the child will have taken a lot of time trying to express his uh, sexual needs, trying to communicate indirectly that I'm going through puberty, I want to be in a relationship with the girls, I want to go out even with the boys, I want to do what the other boys are doing. So you find that there are sometimes 
in the cocoon that they cannot express themselves, but the need is there. So it's also necessary that we understand that they also develop just like the other children. The only problem is that they might not know how to express their needs. I don't know whether uh, Mangi have anything to add on that. Wangi? When stronger boys is able to comprehend about their sexuality, they are some because of their level of disability, they are not able to comprehend their sexuality. And when you talk about the sexuality, like, uh, like what John Onala, Dr. John Onala has said, there are so many aspects when you when talk about the sexuality at the puberty. Because we talk about anatomy, we talk about health, we talk about personal hygiene, reproduction, relationship, so orientation, and also there are some other factors like the, uh, the religion, the religion, and the social factors, which we as a teachers also we cannot ignore. So and what now we also need to take care of is that there are some learners or some children, because of the level of the disability, they may develop at a lower uh, rate or at a lower uh, level when compared to their peers. And when we have a child who is for 18 years old and, and they, they also not have achieved the puberty hood, it's also an issue. When we have a child whereby because of other disabilities like the hormonal imbalance, they achieve the puberty hood before they appears, it's also an issue which can also lead to what we are saying about the self-esteem. Right. Okay. Thank you, thank you very much for that introduction. So I know um, one of the main things that we see that we will notice most of the time is apparently when they start uh, touching themselves and getting attached, as you'd say, Dr. Onala. As caregivers and as parents, what, what should we do when that happens? Do you stop them? Is that the time you try and communicate? And like, how would you let them know, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Because you're wondering if they're doing it, and then how do we tell them no one else is supposed to touch you? It is private. Because that's a conversation that can be a bit tricky. Okay, maybe I can have a go in that. Okay. Yeah, so usually, uh, it's, I know it's, it can be quite frustrating to the parent if your child is touching his private parts or doing masturbation in a public place or want to hug you and want to kiss you and or maybe a visitor comes home and they they want to hug that visitor and they get they cling on the visitor and you're trying to tell him oh please uh, i want to talk to auntie son so can you go play elsewhere and the child do not want to leave so that's where we need to come in and start teaching about public and private behaviors Certain behaviors will not tell the child you cannot do that, but you can explain where that can be done. So, for example, uh, the child likes hugging ladies and want to hug mom, want to hug uh, the house help. So, you can uh, draw boundaries. So, 
you are not allowed to hug so and so or a stranger or someone who is uh, you know you know how to define the boundaries so and even when it comes to hugging mom how should you hug mom probably uh, you can only hug mom when mom has allowed you to do so and you can give maybe mama a kiss on the in mom's cheek no you have to start drawing boundaries and when they are touching their private parts sometimes we also you'll not say you cannot do that without explaining what they should do because you'll find sometimes children will start touching themselves to a level where they start doing masturbation and they can do that even in public places so what you need to explain is when and where that can be done instead of demonizing that no you hear of, uh, stories of someone who was told no 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 and he believes everything is evil and so time comes when you want your child to get married and you have identified a suitor for your child and then but what this child was told is that it's a sin so this child can't want to have a relationship because the child was told it's not allowed so we need to teach the appropriate behavior you need to tell the child whom the child can hang where the child can hang. I also need to explain what are the public behaviors that the child can engage in, and also what are the private behaviors that the child can only do in his bedroom or in their washroom. So we need to have a clear boundary and train the children to understand. For children who are nonverbal, we can use short video clips, you can use uh, picture stories or just pictures that you use to explain. And also, uh, because nowadays we know that they, we also have high chances of abuse. So don't call people auntie or uncle. No, uncle came here or auntie came. And so when the child is abused, then the child just be saying, it is uncle who did it. Call people by their names. So, and if you want to use uncle, say that was uncle John or uncle Peter or auntie Susan came home. So they, they know they, they can report an abuse. So we need to... them public behaviors and private behaviors and when to exhibit those behaviors thank you very much thank you very much uh Daktari. uh i would like to welcome um maitha she's our sign language interpreter remember we said we are speaking to various um persons with dis different disabilities and we have had high demand that we need to include sign language so that those who are hard of hearing can also learn because it all they get also get affected and they would like to learn and also remember some of our children learn through sign language and uh, hence you find majorly when you're not having a presentation we shall be having our sign language interpreter thank you maida for your volunteering all right uh Asaf, do you have anything to add on to that? Uh, yes, I can add this fact here. Yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, I have come across parents who don't think that the people with disabilities are not sexually active. And I want to debunk this myth that people with disability, they are sexually active and they have sexual feelings. So that's a myth which we need to debunk that people with disabilities, they have sexual feelings and they are sexually active. And what Dr. Onala said is that we need also to train these people with disabilities about their private parts and the public parts. But how do we train them? 
Do we train them like the regular ones? No, because if we talk about someone who is visually impaired, we cannot use visual uh, charts. If we talk about someone uh, who is a mentally charged or severe mentally charged, we cannot use language to explain about the sexual abuse. And one thing which we have never, we feel to train these children is to train them the specific private parts and specific non-private parts, where to touch and where not to be touched. So when you talk about the sexual abuse, if we have to protect it, we have to train these learners about good touch or bad touch and what to do when a bad touch happens. Um, if you go to YouTube, there's uh, some clips which are used by some schools to train their children, both the special learners and the regular learners, where we say, no, go, tell. So you say no, when to say no, then when to go or to run away and to tell. And when we talk about to tell, we always tell the child to have about five people whom they can trust. So if you tell the first person and they don't seem to listen, you can go to the next one. I think it's a, it's a small clip. If you go to their YouTube and you go to No Go Tell, you'll see how children in other countries are trained on how to avoid the sexual abuse. All right. Thank you. Yeah, someone had just asked that question about if we have the material. So is it just that one material that's available? No, 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 no. Uh, what, what happened, yeah? What happened is that each and every disability, we have to tailor make the material according to the nature of the disability of an individual. As I said, if a child is mute, does not comprehend language, what do we use? So we use, sometimes we are forced to use the three-dimension model. So you, you come up with a model, like, like a dolly, and then in this dolly, you try to train this boy. This part is called this, this part is called this. This part is a private part, no one should touch this private part, and then they can see it, and they can feel it. Then there's also drawings. You can use pictures and diagrams. You can also use the videotapes. You can also use a tactile, especially for learners who are visually impaired. You can make a tactile model, and then they can know this uh, about their sexuality. And also, for the learners uh, who are deaf, uh, the family of the deaf, they can also use the sign language. So the materials depend on the nature of the disability and the level of disability when it comes to an individual. Okay, um, I, I believe you finished. I think I lost you somewhere. But uh, Josphat would like to say something with relation to that. So Josphat, yes, uh, you, uh, you could say something. Oh yeah, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. and Mr. Mwangi. Uh, just want to uh, reiterate or build on, on what Dr. Nala has said about um, uh, sexuality and in terms of security and safety of the children as they enter into uh, sexual active and maybe puberty. Uh, I usually end up, I've experienced this quite a long time.
time in my service to children with autism and learning disabilities, they are usually highly and sexually impulsive. And this would mean that at some point they are unable to control the emotions that result from the sexual urge or the sexual motive that is within their bodies. And sometimes they may express this even during lessons, during class time when they have a female teacher, if they're for the boys, and even a male teacher, and this can be very, very uh, frustrating. Um, so um, at times you'll find that um, if you tell them to stop doing that, and uh, this causes them to become very violent because of the urge and because of the impassivity, the children may become so violent and destructive in class. So it's, it's very important that um, uh, we guide them as early as possible on uh, where they should do what, which behavior is for the public and which behavior is um, is supposed to be done in a private area, and not that this comes up with a, a high level of built-in uh, built-in energy. So giving that small room so that they can do whatever it is, masturbation or something, uh, makes them calm down, and you can go on with your lesson uh, so well as you continue guiding on where what should be done and um, basically at what time. Now there is uh, there is also an issue of uh, social distancing. Uh, depending on who should be hugged and at what uh, and what proximity and at what time, because uh, when this uh, sexual impassivity comes in, then uh, the children become at a very risk, and any one person can take an advantage of that. You can see and just serious it can be. So uh, teaching them uh, social distance right away from the family, uh, from the family background extending towards other strangers who might be coming in the, in the house. And uh, what I've quite used quite a lot is um, the circles of social distance with the different colors. Actually, start teaching them uh, whom you should hug closely and whom you should hug uh, with a distance and whom you should just greet and whom you should, you should just wave uh, to show that uh, um, there is some level of social distancing. Otherwise, uh, people can take advantage of them if uh, that social distancing is not taught. So a small circle would mean within members of the family, you can hug. A very, very small circle for a boy means you can hug your father tightly, and a bigger, slightly bigger circle means your mother, then you only need maybe to, 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 to greet or hug at a, at, a, at a given social distance. And a larger circle would mean maybe a family, uh, people, relatives who keep coming in, in the house. And a larger, larger circle, would definitely tell the child that uh, the person coming in is, is a stranger and therefore uh, social distance is, uh, is important. And if you add in different colors, so that one color is may mean, means uh, members of the family, the other color would mean father or mother, and then a different color, very unique, would mean uh, strangers and people who are very, very, very strange to the child. And that, with the consistency, will help the child to know uh, whom to hug, whom to greet and whom to wave to. And as they get into that level of sexuality, with that level of uh, impassivity, then children will definitely be able to control themselves and keep safe, just in case. Right, that's my part here. Thank you, thank you very much for that, um, Josphat. Uh, someone had raised their hand, but it's reading techno. I'd appreciate if I could get to know the name. Um, before that, um, let's just walk about, at least you have touched Joseph on that, at, at least explains on how to handle boundaries. 
Now, Dr. Onala, just guide. Now, the point at which they start getting there, because we're all adults here, we will not siphon what we're talking about. So when they start having wet dreams and they start getting a hard on early in the morning, how, how do you explain that to that? Um, also consider like, I'll put myself in that shoe, like as a single parent and uh, one who doesn't have any male, um, let's say what, siblings around, how, as a, how, how do you handle such a situation? So that is one, explaining to them and two, just uh, how do you reach out without compromising the fact that you're the lady and there is the gents boundaries there? Right. So the issue of West Dream is probably quite closely linked to masturbation. So we, we have those ones who during the day they want to do masturbation. Uh, if they don't do that, then at night they get wet dream and you know, their pants are dirty and you know, they, sometimes they don't like it. Uh, and then waking up in the morning and there's erection, probably it could be because of the warmth when they were sleeping. It could be because they want to visit the washroom. There could be other reasons other than just the sexual reason because uh, you see boys having erection early in the morning, not because they are thinking about sex or anything or having a relationship. So we also need to understand that. Uh, but then we need to make sure that these children understand what is a public behavior and what is private behavior. And also let them understand what is normal. For instance, if a child got wet dream, we also need to help this child understand that that is also part of development and it's normal. And so we try to bring out or remove the shame. You know, sometimes uh, if you shout at the child, oh, look at what you did, uh, it's embarrassing to do that, that would be wrong. But if we help them understand that this is part of development and you're probably going to see more and more of this, and therefore we need to think of hygiene. When you wake up in the morning, you need to change your beddings, you need to wash your panty. So you teach them the part of hygiene so they understand that that's part of normal development. But then when it comes to other things, like maybe he's waking up and uh, he's experiencing erection and he wants to walk to the living room or maybe to the dining room, then you also need to teach him that, that certain uh, behaviors that are considered private behavior. So in that case, if you wake up, for instance, early in the morning and you're experiencing erection, you can go to the washroom. You can have a cold shower if the child can do that. If not, just go to the washroom, stay there for a few minutes, go back to your bedroom, change your clothes, uh, have your bath, uh, no, just explain the day's routine. So come to the bed, uh, to the living room or to the dining or to the kitchen, wherever he's going, when he's now dressed and he's ready to uh, face the outside world. So how to teach them what is uh, public behavior, what is allowed in the public place. Uh, there are certain things that are generally allowed, they can be done, but not in a public place. So it's not wrong for you to have an erection but it is not right for you to have it in a public place so the child understands so that yeah it's it's normal for me to have this to have this kind of feeling because they have the feeling and we cannot stop the feeling and we cannot punish them for having the feeling so what you can do is to explain where that should be done so you are uh, having masturbation that's a 
private uh, behavior. Where can you do it? If uh, you allow me to just give an experience of a boy I worked with many years ago, and he would do that in the classroom, he would also do it in the washroom. So at the end of the day, we agreed with the boy that that would only be done in the bathroom, and then after doing that, he would wash his hand and dress up nicely, and when he comes out, nobody should know what happened when he was in the bathroom there. So he comes out, he's clean, he's washed his hands, and now he'll be able to say hi to someone, he can shake hands. But now, if that is done in the public place, then it lowers uh, the child's self-esteem, uh, it reduces so social interaction, the other children will not want to associate with this one, uh, no one will want to shake his hand because uh, they are condemning what the child has done. But if the child knows where to do that, then we reduce the level of stigma. And then the, the other thing maybe that I can add on that you didn't ask about is uh, the issues of relationship. Again, we cannot tell, you will not tell your son that it is wrong to have a relationship. But what, what you need to explain is when that relationship uh, can develop, when to have the relationship, and what to do when you are in a relationship. So if you are a 14-year-old boy uh, or 15-year-old boy, uh, feels that tell him, no, you cannot love that guy. But you can explain how they can relate. You can explain what they can do when they go out for a walk together. You can explain what they can do when they are maybe playing some video games in the house or playing football outside. You, you can come into their relationship and support them positively in that relationship without lowering the boy's self-esteem. And then now you, you mentioned something of maybe being a single mother. I, I know sometimes it can uh, also come with a few challenges here and there because you feel that maybe you'll not be able to express certain things to your child. Or maybe your child gets out of the bedroom, running to the living room, and you have visitors, and he's naked, and are experiencing an erection. So uh, those are common things that happen. Uh, I, I've seen that with my, my eyes now. I've seen a child running. Uh, one, one day in Westlands, I, I used to work where Mwangi is currently working. And my client was coming to see me, and a boy, uh, was a 17 years old boy, undressed and jumped out of the car naked. Uh, you, you can imagine what happens, the scene uh, in Westlands roundabout, but at that time the roundabout was still working. So how do you handle those kind of cases? And you are a single lady, you are alone with the child. No, those are things that can happen sometimes. So what you need to do is, first of all, you have to be calm. And the other thing you need to know that if you fear talking to your child, you have to be there for your child. First of all, you are, you are your son's mouthpiece. You are there to protect your son also. You have to speak out loudly for your son because we know that in special needs, the society is the problem. Disability is not the problem. But the society is the issue. We have to deal with the society. So in as much as we're dealing with the society, we have to explain everything to this child calmly. So uh, I know you are experiencing this, but when you have your erection, please retard, don't come to the uh, living room or don't come to the kitchen. So uh, go to the washroom, dress yourself nicely, can stay there for some minutes until when you're feeling well, then you can come. And so you don't demonize it. We don't want the child to feel bad about their sexuality because it's part of 
normal development and God created it that way. But we can give them skills step by step. And the other thing we need to understand that is that it takes time. It's not something that you'll talk to your child once and then uh, the child tomorrow does the right thing. It can even take a whole year. So you talk to your child today, you talk tomorrow, you talk the other day, but you keep going until the information sinks in your child. So it's a, a gradual process and we have to start everything early. And uh, if maybe you are associated with maybe a church or some kind of religious uh, group or you have a family member who can occasionally come in, maybe an uncle whom you trust, it has to be someone you trust then you can also ask that person to come in as a mentor for your son. Because a boy also wants someone to relate with us, maybe a, a father figure or someone who can talk to him, you know, the man-to-man -man talk. Uh, someone will tell him, I, I can see you, you seem to be falling in love. I can see you love so-and-so. And then they will laugh uh, around and then the boy will say, no, I don't like her because I don't like this kind of figure or that. I like so and so. They're all, you, you talk to them. So they need someone who can also bring in those kind of conversation with your son. So that when they are developing, they are developing with a clear mind about relationship. Thanks. Wow. Okay. <laughs> We're all learning a lot. Um, Tech, uh, there's someone who had their hand up. I think they've lowered it. Uh, no, Techno. No, we have two Technos. Please, I would like to request you all to just rename your name so that we can be able to address you well. And remember, we are recording, so if someone is not comfortable with that, do let us know. Or, yeah, because we always record for future reference for other caregivers who can, uh, who be helped by the content of what we're discussing. So, uh, Dr. Ari, there is a question that is almost like a follow-up, uh, mm -hmm. which Isaac or, you, um, Asaf or yourself can take. So someone uh, says, in boarding institutions, how do, you, how do homosexual tendencies get handled? Especially for Ms. boys. Right, Mr. Ais, uh, Mwangi, would you want to take that or I go? Uh, you can go then and come up with something else which which need which I think it will escape. Yeah. Which I think it will escape about the sexuality. Mm. Yeah. And mainly we may focus on the on the masturbation, the, the sexual organs and the changes. So there, are, I have about two two items to talk about, but first answer that one. Right. So the. Issue of homosexuality is uh, a big issue, I would say. It's a big issue. Not only for children with special needs, but even for the neurotypical in boarding schools. We've had cases of schools that have been accused uh, that children do those kind of things, and even for girls. And we've also had cases where you'll hear rumors that even teachers are involved in some of those things, or workers. No, that's why I'm saying that the society is the problem and not the disability, because in this case, we are looking at the society. Uh, it's likely that children with special needs are more vulnerable than the neurotypical because they're less likely going to report if this happens. And the abuser will sometimes threaten them. And the abuser can say, no, if you 
say this, I'll kill you, or I'll do this to you, or, you know, generally threatening the child, and so the child can be suffering in, in silence. And we will not want to talk about it, we will not tell the teachers, we will not tell the parents, and especially if it's a child who is nonverbal, then some might not be noticed, but you see significant changes in the child's behavior. So uh, you'll find behaviors such as maybe the boy wants to touch other boys. Uh, this boy wants to kiss the other boys, wants to touch uh, their back. No, uh, is always interested in touching the other boys inappropriately and sometimes using sexualized language like you are beautiful, not telling the other boy, no, I love you, no, those kind of things. So. Uh, when this is discovered in boarding schools, in most cases, let's say most boarding schools that take uh, children with special needs usually have someone sleeping with them in the dormitory. So there'll always be an adult somewhere in the dormitory. Uh, but still, that does not mean that it can't happen. So what you need to do, and my advice would be that if your child goes to a boarding school, teach your child how to report abuse because all these children are, vul are vulnerable. It can happen. And so what you need to do is to teach that child how to report that and also to assure the child that if they report it, then the child will not be punished for reporting. And if uh, the child has been threatened by the abuser, also assure the child that if the child reports that, then the abuser will be dealt with. And therefore, there is no chance that the abuser will uh, come back again to hurt that child. So because the child could be uh, staying in fear that if he reports that, then he's going to be in trouble and that the abuser will kill him, you know, the, the way they will uh, put it to the child. So we need to assure this child that there's going to be support, support from uh, the child's parents, support from the teachers, you know, support all around. So the child feels comfortable to report that. But the most important thing for children with special needs is that we have to find a way of teaching them how to report the abuse so that if it happens, it will be handled. Because if it is not handled, there's always long-term effect. You may, might not notice the effect right now when it happens, but it can take a few years and it can damage the child's future, you know, even as an adult. The things that happened in early childhood or in teenage, will always come back to haunt the child and might spoil the relationship. So we, we need to focus on that. And we also need to train the people who are working with the children. So the teachers and the caregivers in these boarding schools to uh, look out for the signs of abuse so that if it happens, then they'll be able to know even if the child does not report it. And then that will be handled uh, as it happens. Uh, just before you move from that, so what signs of abuse are we looking at? Like, what should we look out to notice the way you're referencing change? What are we looking out for to know that something is amiss? Yeah, I can mention a few, uh, and the most common ones that you're likely to see in boys. Well, one of the things you're likely to see is, uh, one, there could be withdrawal and fearing the other boys, or fearing even the male teachers, because it was probably done by a man. And so this child is trying to generalize with the other men whom uh, he feels is not safe being around the men. Uh, or it can also ha have the opposite uh, uh, reaction, that this child will want to hug the other men, 
or want to hug uh, the boys, will want to touch their back. Uh, the child can even become aggressive. This child was not aggressive before, but is running around and pushing the other children or hanging tightly, and yet that was not happening previously in the child. So, uh, and to a greater extent, it might even interfere with the child's social interaction. The child was becoming more social and want to go out with uh, older people, no longer want to becomes more fearful and do not want any that duality whether that makes sense no touching the other children touching their behind uh wanting more hug wanting to be kissed or want to kiss the other person so you see a few telltale signs that are related to sexuality and when that is seen then you need to investigate further maybe a medical investigation might be appropriate if you suspect that the oscillation penetration so something uh, like that would be helpful. Thank you. Um, Asaf, would you like to take yes, that from there? I, you I, I can add on that. I can add on what Dr. Onal has said. Uh, uh, but time we parent of learners or adults or people with, uh, with disability, we also need to train this puberty or teens about the sexual orientation. I had a chance for meeting a boy uh, whose sexual orientation was odd, but when we dug deeper, we realized that it came from the family. When this boy was at puberty stage, the parents told the boy not to hang out with the girls. So every time the boy had feelings, sexual feelings or love to love the girls, the parents were telling the boy, don't hang out with the girls. It's not good to hang out with the girls. So where was this boy now to extend the sexual feelings? Now he went to the boys because when he got to the girls, the parents were against that. So also we as, a, we as a parent, let's also try to bring health discussion with our teens about the sexual orientation. It's good for the boy to hang out with the girls. It's good for the boy to have sexual feelings toward a girl. But when we tell them it's no, it's wrong, it's a sin, it's not, God does not want that, it's not biblical, it's not, you see, all those things. So now this boy is left with his own disability, with his own limited understanding, is now left thinking, all these feelings now, where do I take them? So they take them to their boys. And when they go, and they, they get another boy with the same feelings, even the parents won't know what is happening. But let's train them about the sexual orientation so that they can comprehend their own sexuality. Another thing which I wanted to say is that when you talk about the puberty, we also forget to talk about the voice. We also talk about, talk about the, like for the, for like for the boys, the facial hair, the pubic hair, uh, the aching, the aching at the pimples on the face. For the 10, 20 years uh, I've been able to interact with so many boys at a puberty level, there's a case where a boy, when he was breaking his voice, it became now like a little man, and he really went what, what we call selective mutism. The boy decided not to speak because he didn't like his voice. His voice had changed. 
from what it was now to a more hoarse voice, which look, uh, which was um, now like a, like a man. So the boy refused to talk. He went into a selective mutism for two years. Why? Because the voice changed. And also there's another boy whom I taught, and he used to pull the beards, the facial hair. So he didn't understand why he could have the facial hairs. So he used to pull them, pull, and you could see the blood oozing from the face. So we had now to sit down with the boy and we told them, it's okay, you are now becoming a man. You are, now not, you are no longer a young boy, you are becoming a man. A man has what we call facial hairs. It even went worse when he was pulling his own pubic hair. So we as the teachers, we as the parents, we also need to train these boys that there are some changes which will occur. And then let also, like what uh, Sylvia is saying, if you are a single mother, look for a man, an uncle, a friend, a neighbor who can work with this boy. But now make sure you also have to trust this man because we are in a new world yeah, whereby the trust is, so, is also at stake. So that this boy can know men, when they are growing, this is a stage whereby they have the facial hairs, the smooth face go, and now we have the pimples, we have arcing, but it is normal, and it's only a stage. We've lost you, Mwangi. Mwangi, we lost you for a second. No, uh, I'm saying it's, it's good for if a parent is a single mother to look for a to look for a man who is either a relative or a neighbor whom she can trust at work with this boy who is at a puberty to know that when men coming men they grow facial hairs they grow pubic hairs the voice break uh, the the normal smooth face change to have some pimples and they know that it's normal and it's only for a short duration and then they'll be able to overcome it be able to live with the changes thank you all right thank you very much for highlighting at least the physical changes uh someone had asked how early we should start letting them know about the sexuality do we wait do we start early or do we wait until they mature so that we start telling them about their sexuality you're muted Onale. okay yes. i've unmuted I, 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 I say something on that so when it comes to issues related to sexuality we need to start early so if you have a three-year-old four-year-old start talking about sexuality because abuse starts early so start telling them uh, what is accepted and what's not accepted. Teach them their private parts. Let them know all that. So start talking to them. There are certain things that you can tell a four-year-old, five-year-old. Let them know their body parts. So that if someone touches them inappropriately, they'll be able to say, he touched this part. So we start that early. 
so that when you now, uh, maybe they are getting to 12, 13 year old, they're becoming teenager, and you want to talk to them about the real issues now about sexuality, you don't have to start from very, very basic. They already know what's allowed and what's not allowed. So the earlier you start, the better. But I've just seen a question, uh, someone talked about, the, I was asking something about pregnancy. We also need to let these boys understand that there's consequence of having sex. So not just focusing on maybe pregnancy, because they will experiment when they go out there with, uh, with, with girls. Or even in school, uh, when girls and boys are left alone and there's no supervision, they can experiment these things. You see, they have feeling, just like uh, Mwangi said, they have feeling like any other child. So we need to talk to them about the consequences also. Let them know that there's possibility of having uh, things like UTI. So they can get uh, sexually transmitted diseases. There can also be pregnancy. We have things like uh, HIV AIDS. So let them understand the full aspect of sex so that we are not just focusing on what they can do and what they can't do, but let them also understand that there are also other things like there are diseases that can come with that. A girl can get pregnant. And if that happens, then there are responsibilities, you know, quite a number of uh, things that might come with the whole process. So when we are looking at uh, the issue of puberty, let's just look at it as a wholesome thing. Let's talk about everything with the children so that they understand that there are responsibilities that come with this. So if anything happens and they're involved in uh, sexual activity, then there are consequences after that. So we just bring in everything so they understand it as a whole thing. All right, thank you. Thank you that, for that, Unana. And then there is um, one question that looks very interesting. Someone is asking, are we supposed to teach them to masturbate to the end when they start constantly touching themselves or have regular erection? That's, that's for me feels <laughs> borderline. Are we supposed to teach them to masturbate when they have no. that or when they, they're touching themselves? I'm trying to understand the question, but I, that's how right. I have understood it. The issue of masturbation comes automatically. I, no child is taught that. I, I don't think they learn it from anywhere. It's part of the development. So there are certain skills that they have developed. I, I think Hello. Hello. One second. Let's kindly and everyone to avoid interruptions. Someone has un entered and they're not. Rosalind, please handle those ones. Thank you. Wilson Musau, please. All right. right. Sorted. Okay. So I, I'm saying that some of these behaviors are part of development and they occur naturally in children. So you cannot teach that because it will happen naturally. But if the child is having erection and not, not masturbating, again, you don't mention the issue of masturbation because masturbation comes with problems. Masturbation comes with so many other challenges, so you cannot teach that. But if it happens that the child is masturbating, then you teach them where to do it, but you don't teach them to masturbate because it's something that will 
happen naturally in both boys and girls. It just happens and they are not taught. It's part of their development. So you, you don't teach it, but you teach where it can be done so that the child is not embarrassed. And then you teach them hygiene that should come with that. So once the child has started doing it, they say, no, you can't do it in the living room. You can do it in your uh, bathroom and maybe have a bath after that or wash your hand with soap and make sure that when you're coming out, you are clean. So you teach those skills, but you don't teach the activity itself, right? Right. Um, Dr. Asaf, this is to you. Yes, I, I, I can add on that, yeah? Mm -hmm. I think the issue of masturbation is a, is a highly discussed uh, concept, even in the US, whereby the social uh, religion uh, sometimes differ. Uh, but what Dr. Nala is saying, there are, so, there are some children who will do that and then they get over it, yeah? But now, uh, most of the parents, is, they, uh, they worry about the... Okay, my the parents worry about what getting happened? addiction. What it, 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 because well, what will happen is that when a child learns how to masturbate, then they release the feel-good hormone. And when they feel when they release the feel good hormones and they go up to a level of orgasm, orgasm is the most yeah. addictive uh, thing in the world. So they will now be doing it, doing it over and over, and it can also affect their social skills. It can also affect their self-esteem, and sometimes it can be worse cases. Like we had. Uh, there's a time we had a child who was looking for school all over in Nairobi, but there's no school which could admit him because he used to masturbate after every five minutes. So we had to refer the child uh, to a psychiatrist for some medical intervention. But now this only happened to a child whose level of, uh, of understanding and comprehension is, is, is at a lower level so that they won't even know where to do it and when to do it. But what John, John is saying is also done in US. Uh, I've read some research there. They are allowed, uh, they are given a room in school to do that. And then even at home, they are allowed. But now, if a child does not know what is private and what is public, then now it also now bring another socio-cultural issue in our, in our Africa setup. So it, it's, it's a discussion which, uh, which is big a lot of controversy and as, as we are seeing in the in the news especially this week uh, what should be taught what should not be taught what should be trained what should not be trained what should be mentioned and what should not be mentioned yes, thank you uh, uh Mungi, just to talk on that just guide on watching pornography yes uh watch pornography at an early age because how does a child know about the pornography they must be introduced because it's not in the books which they read in school so when they are introduced to the pornography then they also get addicted and they also learn and they know something which we the teachers and the parents are not telling them so now they always be going to the pornographic sites to know something because we as the parents, we as the teachers, have not addressed that issue. But 
boys will always go to those sites. Our worry is getting addicted and practicing what they, what, what they are seeing. And psychologically, what happened when these puberty or teens keep on watching pornography, they develop some new neural paths. And these new neural paths in the, in the brain, when they are developed, they become addicted and they always move from what we call the soft pornography to the hard pornography. And within a two years, the hard pornography from a soft pornography. But we as a teacher, what should we do? We as a parent, what should we do? We should always talk to these uh, teens, let them know there are some sites, and these sites have this and this and this, because they are there, we cannot deny, we cannot say that uh, they are not this site, and we can tell them the repercussion of watching the pornography, and if someone has been watching the pornography, we can take them through the counseling, we can tell them the pro and, and cons of watching pornography, and what it automatically it will do to him. Okay? And then from there now, we work together with this teenager. We also try to see what is he trying to get there. Can we also, we as a teacher, try to train him on some things? What is he seeking? Because some learners seek what we are not training them. Seek what the society is afraid of speaking. Seek what we as a parent are hiding from them. So what Dr. Onala said, parents, we are the best teacher, we are the first teacher, and we should train these children, not at the time they are getting to the puberty. Watching pornography, you can even get a four years old, five years old, six years old child watching pornography. So we should now start training them from a younger age, whereby the training is what we call developmentally appropriate. Thank you. Thank you, Asaf. I believe that one also answers. Uh, there was a question by a caregiver about um, the music when they watch vi music videos and the effects. I believe uh, what they see is what they'll start aping. And then um, there is one question where we're being asked when a child, if a child was molested sexually when he was in kindergarten, and now they're in puberty boarding school and he's discovering himself. How do you help them to heal and talk about it? Yeah, that will go to John Onal, who have done more psychology in this. <laughs> right. uh, the, uh, the effect of sexual abuse in uh, later in life is real. So if a child has been abused, if you look at it from this, that human body always keep the trauma. Trauma sticks in our body and someone can get stuck in trauma and may sometimes want to go back to it over and over. So a child who has been abused uh, is likely to be abuser himself in future if that was not addressed. Uh, the child who has been abused is also likely to avoid with issues related to marriage uh, and sexuality because of the previous experience that maybe it was 
they are missing and nobody addressed it. So it can complicate a person's later life. So if we know that the person has been abused, then it's good to slowly bring up the topic on abuse and start talking to this person in a more positive way to help the person talk about what happened and what should be done. Uh, if it's something that can be addressed, maybe talking to the abuser and making sure that the abuser can apologize if no legal action was taken, then that can happen. If legal action is taken, then that can also be part of healing process as we talk to the person who has been abused and also we make sure that the person understands that that abuser will not abuse another person outside there because maybe the person has been locked behind the bars. So it's a process because uh, uh, body keeps the score, uh, uh, human body keeps the score. What happened to you today can stick in you for so many years. And if you're nonverbal and you're not going to talk about it, then it becomes even more difficult to go through healing. So sometimes someone can easily think that people who are nonverbal will easily handle it more than people who are verbal. But the, uh, uh, the, the thing is contrary, that people who are nonverbal suffer more than people who are verbal because they'll have no one to talk to and sometimes the people around them do not understand what they're going through. So once we know that the person has been abused, we need to talk about that slowly with the person. It can take months, it can take years to help the person get out uh, of that. But when you're talking to this person, do not propose that you don't understand what the person goes through. You do not understand how he is hurting from inside. You do not understand the magnitude of the pain that the person has. So what you have is trying to offer solution and help, helping this person to get out of that and reassuring the person that all will be well and that the abuse will not happen again. And then giving this person new skills of reporting abuse or avoiding that kind of thing. So should it happen, uh, keeping safe and the like. So make sure that this thing does not happen again in the life of that person later on in, in, in life. Right. Thank you very much for that. Uh, someone's hand has been there for a while. That is S, I think it's Sam Matasia or some, your hand is up kindly. Hello. Gone. Can you hear me? Yes. yes, we can hear you. Yes, um, thank you very much. I joined in a bit late. Um, my name is Samuel Atiaya. Uh, I've been dealing with the special needs uh, children for quite some time now. And my question is uh, that what about those students who are visual learners? And now you are talking about uh, puberty stage, and these are visual learner students. How can you help them, or your own children at that level? Uh, I, I think that Terry had touched on that. What we can do on that one, just um, we will recap on that on Allah shortly, together with another question about, just one second, let me just find it. Um, where is this one? About the um, 
teaching, teaching them how to report. The way we were discussing about visually sharing and the links, just for the sake of those who joined after we had discussed that. Okay. Okay. Maybe I can recap on that. That there are, uh, some of the stumbling block in the issues related to sexuality is uh, communication, language skills. So as Asaf uh, mentioned that we need to consider the level, the cognitive level of the child, the uh, uh, language issues when we are coming up with strategies to help the child. So uh, I'll just repeat some of the things that Mwangi mentioned that we need to have some visual aids for those ones who cannot be able to communicate uh, using verbal language. So maybe some uh, short video clips or we need to have some pictures that you can use to uh, help them be able to use that to uh, communicate. We can also have the tactiles where you can use maybe uh, toys to help them express themselves, to be able to explain that this is what happened to me. So before the abuse happened, we need to have also taught these children to, uh, basic skills in reporting abuse and also avoiding, not trying to keep safe. We need to teach children how to keep safe you know, before abuse happened. And then suppose the abuse happened, then how do they report? So we need to use visual strategies for the, those ones who cannot talk. Uh, for people with hearing impairment, for instance, sign language will be great for them. They'll be able to report uh, using their sign language. People with autism need to uh, be able to maybe use pictures or signs. And we also have the blind and the deaf blind and we will have to teach them to use the tactile. So that's where uh, Mr. Asaf mentioned using things like the dolls, so that they, uh, they'll be able to uh, explore that and show you this is what happened uh, when I was with so-and-so. And you remember I also mentioned that when people come home, don't call them aunties and uncles, because we know that those are the people, in most cases when abuse happens, it's someone close to the child. In few cases, we have maybe someone from far. So let them understand and know the names of the people so that if something happens, then they'll be able to say it was Uncle So-and-so or Auntie So-and-so who did A, B, C, D. So uh, we have to empower them. And then we also have to assure children or these teenagers Abuser will not hurt them again because that's another thing that abusers will always threaten. And, and even for neurotypical, you'll, if you listen to cases in TV, you'll be you'll hear that they were threatened. The abuser threatened them and uh, told them, "I'll kill you if you re, uh, report this or if you do this. This is what will happen." So you also need to assure them. And then we also need to teach the basic skills like. No, once the abuse has happened, don't have a bath or don't shower because if you are taking this as a legal issue, then there's going to be a medical test and we have to prove that it happened. So we have to give them those basic skills. Thanks. Thank you very much. Now let's escalate this a bit. Circumcision. Is there a timestamp? <laughs> How should we do it? Do we wait until they can understand what is going on or should you just nip it? I, okay, I think Mwangi can take that. Yes, I, I, can, I can take this, yeah, from, but not from a, a, a professional experience, but from what I've seen happen 
because you see with what we talk about the circumcision, it, it also is more to do with the individual, the community, the tradition, and, and so many other factors. Uh, but what I realized, we had a case of two boys who were circumcised when they were teen. So they didn't know what was happening because uh, they were at a level where we call moderate to severe autistic uh, spectrum. So what happened, they went into a major panic after the circumcision. And when they came to school, they lost all what they had gained. Uh, one boy lost all language skills, so he could not talk, he could not trust anyone. Because, but what I think what happened is these boys, what they went through for one week, maybe no one tried to explain them, and this boy could not even trust their parents again because the parents are the ones who took them to the doctor for the circumcision. So their parents who like to avoid that kind of scenario, immediately they, uh, when their child is three years, two years, because the healing is quicker, is faster than, than, than from a teen, they prefer to take the child at, at, at that stage. But we come back to the circumcision, it's more to do with the tradition, cultural beliefs, religious belief, and the parental have the final say. So we, can, we as a professional, we cannot say that it should be done at this time, or it should be done at this time. But when we talk about some other learners, like the physically charged, uh, sometimes because of the level of the hygiene, uh, parents prefer to take them for circumcision at an early age than when they are at the puberty or maybe past puberty. Yeah. Wow, okay. Um, I'm just trying to, to wonder, um, how do you even explain so that you avoid that reaction? How do, you, how do you explain it to them that this is where we are going and this is what is going to go on and why? Uh, this is what we do. Uh, we, we use some clip, clips. There are some clips which will show leave circumcision at what happened, at which part of the body is involved. See? So sometimes we use a three-dimension model. Uh, what I said, you bring a three-dimension model of a man and then you show them Circumcision means this, this is what will happen. Then the doctor will do this. After the doctor does this, we'll go home, we'll put a bandage, and then you show them the bandage, exactly what happened. And then after the bandage, you'll get healed and you'll be okay. But when we assume that they know what, what, where we are taking them and what will happen, and we have not communicated to them, that's what happened. Most will like that because this is a child let's assume the child is nonverbal and we assume that child who is nonverbal does not understand but we can use other media to make him have at least even if it's 40 percent what is going to happen and then we reduce the anxiety even after the circumcision Thank you very much, uh, Doctor. Uh, thank you very much, Irungu. Just another follow-up question. Uh, these days, we are encouraging the participation of 
uh, boys and men. How would we do this for special needs uh, children? Would we encourage, uh, and, and also since you're all teachers, do they get actually the support or the classes for sexuality and, and, and hygiene and the changes in school? Or is it something that as caregivers we have to schedule to do on our own? Yeah, currently uh, there's no there, there, there's no curriculum at a well tailored curriculum for teaching our learners in this aspect. So we also go back to what we call IEP, individual education program, because these learners, even if they are, they share the same disability, they have different level of understanding. They have different level of the cognitive abilities. So it we go back to individual education plan, whereby you sit down with the parent and you come up with a program. This child is, could be 10 years old, but he needs this kind of a program. This child is 18 years old, but the program which he needs to be trained is, for like, is like for like six years old. So it, it all go back to the individual level and the teacher formally, together with the parent, what we call individual education plan to train the child in this area. Um, there are some schools which give them various names. Uh, there are some schools which will give them sex, sex education. Uh, there are some schools which will have the, their own terminologies. But at the end of the day, what they are trying to teach is what we are discussing. But we need to sit down with the parent, come up with an individual education program tailor-made for a specific teen with disability. Because they may be the same, but their needs are different. Thank you, Dr. Rongo, for that. And uh, we have one teacher who's saying that she has experienced children masturbating as early as seven to eight during classes. How do you handle that as a teacher? And, and, and she's asking what causes that, especially at that early age? Onala? Right. So you, at around seven, eight years, we don't really refer to it as masturbation. They are playing with their genitalia. They are kind of exploring themselves. And that happens even to normal children, you know, the neurotypical children, that at certain age, you'll find that they, they want to play with their genitalia, even when they go to the washroom. Or even outside there, when they're playing football, you'll see them pulling down their pad and urinating, and they're competing who can urinate fathers. And so boys will always do that. They, they're exploring themselves. And so what you can do at that, uh, if that happens, is to explain things related to sexuality and tell them what is appropriate and not appropriate. So you need to highlight that that's not uh, accepted in the classroom. So you don't touch yourself like that in the classroom. You explain where they can do that. But in that case, in most cases, they'll just be exploring their, themselves. Now, they're not really masturbating. Uh, later on, that will graduate to masturbation. However, if the child has been exposed to pornography, then they are trying to masturbate. So you need to talk to parents. So if you are a teacher and you have noted some of those things, you need to talk to the parent and explain that, no, I've been working with your child and I've noted A, B, C, D. Can you also observe that from home? And then you agree jointly with the parent on what to do about it. So 
the parents should be explaining at home this uh, cannot be done in a public place, this can only be done in a private place, and that is also done in school, and then it is reinforced. So if you explain to the child that, for, for instance, if you don't do A, B, C, D, you are going to get a, a sticker or a star, and if you accumulate this number of stars, then you'll be able to uh, exchange it with something, then they will understand that. But that can always graduate into uh, masturbation later on, if not handled in early years. And uh, uh, the other thing about masturbation is that if not controlled early, then it can damage the person's social interaction with the other children. So we, we need to work together, the uh, teachers and the parents have to work together to help control that and direct it to the right place without damaging the child's self-esteem and without making them feel bad about themselves. Thank you very much for that. Now, that is the teenage part of it. What happens, um, most parents feel like their children will never become independent, will not get into relations. Um, and then when they get to that age of 18, and then we've gone through this teenage, and they would like to actually experiment and actually have um, sexual, um, I'm trying to figure out which is the best word. Anyway, they would like to have sex. So how do you have, how, how do you have that conversation with them? And uh, how do you put it in a safe way about having sex itself, the action itself, who is the safer way of doing it? Now we are, we now we've moved from a bit of the teenage we're talking about. Now we are 18. Like we've said, we need to talk to them a bit earlier and make it a constant conversation. So how do you start having that conversation? Also considering that most children uh, or even our teenagers and our adults would be, a, would be physically, let's say 18, but mentally we know their ages are a bit lagged behind. So at what point do we start engaging? Because you find that we are, as caregivers, we'll be stuck with our children for a while, but still they're human. And these urges are there and all these things that they want to experiment and have. So I know that that, can, um, that inclines a bit about the, the masturbation, if they start masturbating and, and um, now the actual sexual intercourse itself. How do we draw the line and how do we guide them appropriately to make sure if they have to, when the time is right, that is the key word, and who do we as the caregivers initiate that? Do we organize for it? Do we just let them, you know, these are some of the nightmares that we have. So if you could kindly guide on that, we'll appreciate it. Right. So maybe I can say something and then I'll also want uh, Asaf to come in. I, I, I'll answer that by first of all giving an example of a, a situation I had this week. Uh, my old client, you know, Mwangi told you, been in this field for 20 years now. So that means that some of the children who are children at that time are now adults. So uh, this client walked in and told me that his son wants to get married. And the son is really pushing him and telling him, no, get me a wife. I want to get married. I can't just stay like this. I want to get married. So a relative somewhere told them that, no, we can organize. We can have an arranged marriage. But this client of mine was uh, not sure whether that's the right way to go and wanted guidance. No. So my advice was this. 
this is a normal human being. If only a disability or special needs was something that you can hold with your hand and kick it out, then what you are left with is a normal human being. And biblically, if I can bring in a, a religious issue, and uh, then God created man in his own image. So we are all perfect, God creation. So what I, uh, my advice would be, yes, I want this person to have a wife and to have children and to live a, a happy life later on. But how? The, the question is how? So what uh, I would do in this case is to have education, to train this boy or this young man on the issues of relationship, how to date, what to do when they go out, how to talk to the person they are dating. And then I'll also make sure that the other person, the partner, let's say now this young man gets a lady, I would also want the lady to understand uh, that they can relate, but how can they relate? So you have to give practical skills. So you tell this person you can go out, for instance, you can have uh, coffee together, uh, you can come home and have stories together. And then meanwhile, we'll be organizing for your marriage if you're planning to get married. Uh, uh, based on religious background, most I don't think the, any of the religion will say, yes, you can have sex before marriage. But then we can teach them that, yes, sex is good, but it has a place. So it's not something that you just wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to have sex or tomorrow I'll have sex or I'll be having it every day. But we need to help them understand that, yes, at some point they will be allowed to have that sex. But that sex will come with responsibility at the right time. So give them some basic uh, education, personal hygiene, taking care of each other, basic skills helping them to understand that later on they'll be able to live together if uh, he's got someone he loves and the, that person is in agreement and therefore parents from both sides would be fully involved and even the friends and the neighbors would be fully involved to support them to understand that there will be uh, misunderstandings in their relationships they are going to have uh, disagreements you know there are times when they'll hurt each other so i want you to think of a neurotypical child what you teach your other child, the neurotypical child, teach those things to this boy also. Let him understand what are the core values uh, that you believe in as a parent, based on your religion, based on your culture. Uh, how do you want life to move on? So don't say that, no, you cannot have sex. But yes, you can have sex at this point. So you, you have to be very clear and teach them you know, those basic skills, teach the girl basic skills, teach the boy basic skills. And uh, if now they are planning to get married, then also talk about the birth control. Involve professionals like gynecologists to uh, explain a few things, or uh, counselors to explain a few things. So it should be something that a number of people will come in to support them. So it's not just like one way forward. No, it will take time and a lot of family support, a lot of support from friends and professionals. Yeah, I would like Mwangi to come in in that area too. Yes, Dr. Ari, yes. It's also what I'm seeing a controversial topic because there are some countries in Western, in UK and in US, in Europe and in America, which has said that 
sex is a human basic need. You cannot deny sex. You cannot uh, try to prevent someone, two adults, to have sex. And when I was looking at, uh, when I was reading that literature, and I found that there are some countries in those continents whereby it's a right for a person with disability to have sex when they want through the consent at, at the right time. But we come back to Africa, and uh, this Africa, and we have our own tradition, we have our own uh, beliefs, and culture, and our religion, enkindment. But what I would like to, to agree with John is that it's not a one-man approach. It's a multidisciplinary approach. We, you need to have counselors, you need to have uh, family members, you need to have teachers, you need to have, like, like so, sometimes if you want them to get married, you need to also to decide, do you want them to have children? And if, if you want them to have children, sometimes there are some parents who go further to seek for genetic counseling to see whether if this child is married, will he or she have a special needs child? What are the chances of uh, this teen getting married and having another, a, sorry, a child with, with disability? So they also go far to seek for genetic counseling. So that's why I'm saying it's a multidisciplinary approach where so many professionals are involved. But it's something which is doable. It can be done with a lot of training and with a lot of support. But all in all, what now we need also to train these children is also, because what Sylvia said that when we it come now to having sex, do they even know, do some even know what sex is? Do some even know who to have sex with? Do some even know the health, what we call health sex? Not just sex with anyone, not just sex with uh, any decade hurry outside, is sex is what we call health sex. So we also need to train them on that subject, that you can only have sex and health sex means this and this. At sex, there are some repercussions. There are some, you can't get pregnant, you can get uh, STDs, but how can you prevent yourself from having pregnancy? How can you help yourself from not contracting HIV from STD? And now this one, or other categories of the disability. But what the doctor said is this, the way you can teach a typical child about sex is exactly the same way you can teach a child with or a teen with disability. The only thing which you need is to tailor make it or to tailor make your discussion or to tailor make your lesson to fit to that individual team. Thank you. Thank you, Mwangi, for that. Thank you for breaking it down. Um, would you like to add anything on Anna, or that's, that's good? 
Right. Yeah. No. Uh, maybe what I can say is that no, the issue of marriage is a the issue of marriage is a big issue for most parents. Can you hear me? So I'm um, saying the issue of marriage is a, a, a major issue and no, I do get clients asking me, do you think my child will get married and have a family? Do you think uh, he'll lead a fulfilling life in future? And I always say with support. If we support them, they'll have a fulfilling relationship. They'll get married, they'll have family with support. And we also need to consider the level of disability and the severity. If the condition is so severe, then uh, the possibility of getting married is significantly reduced. So we also need to, before we think of whether you'll be able to enter into a relationship, you can get married and have children, we also need to consider the severity of uh, the condition. Because if it's very severe, then uh, the chances are also significantly reduced. Right. Yes, John, I also yeah. recommend this, uh, this film. Hello? Hello? Hello, I can hear you. Yes, I'd also recommend this film. I know maybe you have watched it. It's called I Am Sam. Mm -hmm. Yes, I Am Sam. So I recommend the parent to watch that film. It's a, it's a good movie of an autistic father, a single father that who raised up a daughter is a very interesting movie to watch i am sam you can watch it in, in your youtube netflix is there all right thank you very much there is a parent who's asked that if it's severe autism and this child still needs sexual relief how do you handle that uh, i would say if the child is doing masturbation I wouldn't stop masturbation because it will also help relieve that child's sexual desire and reduce the level of impulsive sexual expression. So if this child is doing masturbation, then I would uh, probably encourage that child to do it in a safe place, maybe in the washroom, teach the uh, personal hygiene and all the requirements that would be needed for the issue of masturbation. Because if it's a child with severe autism, uh, with a lot of maybe ritualistic behavior, problem with language and communication skills, uh, probably challenges with social understanding, then that, that, that child's uh, possibility of getting married is reduced. And so what we are left with is to allow that child probably to engage in masturbation if the child already knows how to do that and is doing it. So channel it in the right place uh, rather than uh, focusing on getting that child a partner because it might be difficult to get a partner. But if the child is doing masturbation, then channel it in the right place. All right, thank you, thank you for that. And I can, we have, have actually gone the one and a half hours that we normally set out to have. And uh, I don't know if there is any other question from our, our guests today uh, but uh, there is an interesting comment um, that, that that has just uh, come come in uh, someone has said to pick on the religion belief about sex, be, sex before marriage speaking as a male myself it's not practical or realistic unless the young man is not exposed 
we, most males with disability, will engage with sex workers as clients in private before marrying. So now that's PWD speaking. I don't know what, what, what uh, your thoughts are. It was a conversation on where a father said that he actually helps his child by masturbating the child to just relieve that because he's severely autistic. And he, he, he just uh, likes seeing the fact that the child is happier and the child uh, is now smiling and there is some sort of relief. And that is what now, as a parent, he's opted to do. You know, I know there, there, like we say, there is uh, different schools of thoughts, different aspects of religion. But bottom line, I believe, is all of them are human. All of them will still go through all the things we go through. Now, just one last thing that I think we need to look at: self-identity. Because remember, not all all neurodiverse are are unable to move forward how do we work with them the minute they start identifying with themselves i can be this i can that how do we work with them to help them identify who they are and what they would like to be in life okay maybe i can say something and then uh asaf can come in self-identification or self-identity if a child has chosen a certain path, and that's the path that he wants to take in his life, I wouldn't really discourage that unless I feel that it is a dangerous thing to try or it's something that I think is not going to work out. But I would encourage and look for professional guidance and how to help the child uh, make progress in that. I I'll give you an example. I I've got this young adult, uh, he's about 17 years old, uh, fairly verbal, not very verbal, but fairly verbal. But he would say even when he's watching news, he's doing everything. You see, in that house, there was always noise. He's constantly singing. So when I met him, then I asked his parents, why can't you get him uh, drum sets and a piano and a teacher to teach him that? Maybe he can excel in music. And when they started, that was uh, sometimes last year, towards the end of the year, when they started working on music and teaching him voice, in as much as his language is less developed, but his singing became so good that now they are thinking of uh, coaching him in that direction. So if a child has identified specific things that, or a specific path that he wants to take, then uh, I would look into a possibility of supporting that child to take that path instead of discouraging. I know sometimes you say, I want you to learn basic reading, I want you to do mathematics, I want you to do ABCD. That is what you want as the parent. But what does your child want? So we also need to think about that. What are his strengths and what are his challenges and what can we develop in that child so that we make him be a happy person? At the end of the day, if that child will be able to do what he's happy to do, it's much better than maybe what will earn him money or what you want as the parent. So we have to uh, think about that. What does the child want and what are his strengths and what are his challenges so we can develop his strengths and help him achieve his goals without really discouraging. I know that sometimes when a child can say, I want to do this or I'm interested in learning and you live in Nairobi and no, he's just into that. Or he's constantly uh, playing with mud and you have never thought of 
doing something like pottery with your child or gardening with your child, know which path does your child want to take in life. So is it something that you can develop? I would not discourage that. I would want to develop that and seek professional guidance and help the child move to that direction. Uh, Asaf? I totally agree with Dr. Uh, with Daktari because most of parents and the teachers, we focus on the needs or the weakness of a child. We rarely look at what, what the child can do best. We always look at what the child cannot do and we try to work on what the child cannot do and we give it more effort and more energy for getting what the child can do. So what Dr. is saying, if we focus, even if we are trying also to work with what the child cannot do, but also we also give the same, same effort and energy to what the child can do. And then the self-esteem will be built. Because this child will say, fine, okay, I can, I'm not good with books. I cannot do number work. I cannot be able to write. I cannot be able to read. But I can do farming and make money. Do DJ, I can be a chef, I can be a cook, I can be a tailor. So let's also not try to make these children or these uh, teens to do, what, to do what we wish them to do. Let's also give them a room for them to, so that they, they, they can also realize their own potential and they can also realize that they, they have more potential in some areas whereby the neurotypical child does not have. And when we do that, the self-esteem and the self-concept would be more positive. Another thing which we also need to avoid is, uh, is giving negative uh, reactions. When these teens keep on receiving negative reactions from the teachers, from the parents, from the peers, what happens is that they internalize this reaction and they believe that they are less valuable than others. And this also leads to social anxiety, phobia, and self-pity. So if we can avoid negative reaction, we will be able to avoid these teens to develop social anxieties, phobias, and self-pity, which has a direct effect on their self-esteem and their self-concept. Thank you. Maybe I could say something still on the same. Uh, someone has just said, posed a question there in terms of marriage. So if uh, the child has chosen a certain path in terms of marriage, maybe he's spotted a girl somewhere or a girl is in love with the boy and the child has maybe fallen in love. If it's something that can be uh, developed, they would still say, yeah, you develop that. Uh, bring in the issue of counseling, multidisciplinary, the way we talked about it, and help them understand what is expected. And if uh, you feel that marriage is the solution, in that case, they can live together, then I would still encourage that. So as a parent, you know, every parent will want to see their children getting married and being happy in marriage, irrespective of disability. So if that is a possibility, uh, we have to consider that. If it's a possibility, then we have to come in and support them and give them the right training, education, and counseling, and every kind of support that uh, is available in the neighborhood.
thank you, thank you, Nala. Thank you, Asaf. Uh, really, we have extensively and extensively dived into this conversation. And, uh, I can see, looking at the numbers that we have, that everyone was eagerly waiting for this conversation, and it's not dropping. So that means we're still all engaged. I would like to. Thank you very much for that enlightening. I believe we have answered every question that I had um, earlier and even now. And um, okay, I've just seen one that has come in. Child transition should also form part of the child IEP. As we work on attainment of all developmental milestones as a, at a tender age, we should also remember that the child will definitely grow up. Thank you very much for that, Peter. And that is actually the fact of what is on the ground. And I would like to say thank you, uh, Dr. Nala and, and Asaf. You make a great team at this. And I do not regret any second of having both of you because we've gotten... Um, from experience, from the psychological side of it, from real life side of, of the conversation. And all of you for engaging us, we'd like to say thank you very much. And we do this every Saturday, same time, unless we are having an international guest and, uh, and we have to change time because of time zones. I believe it's very comfortable. And uh, to, today was our 10th session on puberty. We shall be discussing about the girls on the 28th. So don't, don't go far. Because on 11th, we shall be taking a break. Remember, once a month, since we didn't do it uh, last week or this week, because of the urgency and availability of our speakers, we shall be having a break next week for you to rest and recuperate. Because we say every Saturday, it should be you time. At least once a month, take care and love yourself. That's the only way you'll have sufficient energy to take care of your own children also. After that, we will handle nutrition. After nutrition, we'll have menstruation. And after that, we shall be hosting Dr. Samia on the first weekend of August as we discuss epilepsy, convulsions, and all the challenges that come with it. So those are that is our lineup of what's coming up. So please, if you're not following us, I've posted on the chat our social media pages so that you are able to join us at the time and be informed when we have this. So Twitter, we always have continuous conversation. Remember, this is Andy Speaks, and that Andy Speaks, we are here to educate and empower you as a caregiver on how to raise your child. And also behind the seats, we are a right-based organization. We are also fighting for the rights of our children, for that for them to be included, um, both in education, health, and also integration. And uh, advocacy is very very key in what we, we do and those can join monday and kbc we shall be discussing education will be one of the panelists so if there is any area you'd like for us to touch on you can slide on my dm i promise you i always respond so thank you all very much thank you for our speakers and thank you for everyone who took time to join us don't forget to subscribe so that if you came in late you'll be able to catch up with the first set from the beginning and then all the other nine episodes that we have had are also available on our youtube channel so be sure to follow us and we'd like to say thank you once again until next time um as always take care of yourself love you and love your babies more and may god give you the strength and the capacity to continue raising this special children because he knows and will give you the grace that you need able to do the best so that they can be the best of what they can be. So until next Saturday, but one, I've been your host, Silvia Moramu Chabo. We'll see you next time. Have a fabulous weekend. And thank you, Maita, for being.
uh, sign language interpreter, you're always awesome. And thank you for your volunteer work with Andy Speaks. We appreciate you. We appreciate everything. Thank you. Thank you, Maita. All right. Have a fabulous weekend, everyone. Something I wanted, something I wanted. Another.